This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The Makarian writings um, come from the 4th century. They're one of the great fountainheads of Christian mystical teaching, Christian spirituality. And they've long been valued across the confessional divide by Orthodox, Catholics, Protestants alike. So I thought they'd be a particularly good um, topic for our um, ecumenical event uh, today. The Makarian writings represent one of the most precious patristic teachings we have as to the nature, character, and even the feel of salvation. And I'll explain uh, what I mean by the feel of salvation um, as we move forward. The teaching on salvation we find in the Makarian homilies, the Makarian writings, is immensely practical, at the same time anchored in a robust dogmatic framework, a robust doctrinal framework. They're very Christocentric, centered on Christ, that is, but simultaneously fully alive to the inescapably Trinitarian character of the dynamic of salvation. They give particularly valuable, striking testimony to the direct and unmediated experience of the Holy Spirit, while remaining fully committed to the sacramental life of the church. And thereby, they strike a very nice balance, I think, between the um, institutional and the charismatic dimensions of the Christian life. They also provide an almost unparalleled guide to the workings of grace in the human heart, hence the title with its focus on the heart. It's in the heart that we find and experience what Macarius calls, the author calls, the treasury of the living Jesus. The experience of salvation wrought by Christ in the human heart. In short, they're some of the most compelling and inspiring texts to have been gifted by God to his church. What are they? They're a group of texts, uh, maybe a hundred different texts, different forms, homilies, questions and responses, letters, written by the anonymous guide of a network of spiritual communities, monasteries in Syro-Mesopotamia, so present-day Syria, present-day um, Iraq. They come from roughly 370 to 390 AD. From a very early stage, they were ascribed to Macarius of Egypt, who's one of the great desert fathers, one of the great teachers of the Egyptian desert. But that's an inscription which has been found to be um, untenable. To cut a long story short, I'll simply refer to the author as Macarius, the blessed one, the blessed one. So we're in the fourth century here, late fourth century, a time of great change for the Christian church a time of gradual Christianization of the Roman Empire following the conversion of the Emperor Constantine. It's a time when the persecution of Christians was still fresh in people's minds. And indeed, the author of these texts, Macarius, uh, claims to have known people who suffered, who were persecuted during the great persecution launched by the Emperor Diocletian. So a monumental time. It's also a great time for Christian monasticism, especially in Egypt, great time for Christian theology. It's when we find the universal or ecumenical councils of Nicaea and Constantinople dealing with the question of the, the Holy Trinity. And Macarius um, is particularly interesting. In that he's not only a very fine writer on the spiritual life, on the mystical life, but also an accomplished dogmatic theologian. He's got a lot to say about Trinitarian theology, a lot to say about Christology. So what I'm gonna do in this lecture is to start off with a brief overview of Macarius's teaching. 
and then move to a closer study of his Christology and his understanding of salvation, the salvation wrought by Christ in each and every human heart. Now, one of the great uh, leitmotifs, great themes of Macarius is experience. It's all about experience. The direct experience of Christ in the spirit constitutes the sole legitimate basis for theology. His testimony to the experience of the spirit is almost unparalleled. And nobody before him and very few people after him have spoken with such subtlety, range, precision, and poetry of the experience of the spirit. And we see in Macarius a very interesting combination of um, a Greek philosophical background with the poetic symbolism of the Syriac Christian tradition. So a lot of poetry, a lot of imagery. It's a very um, colorful um, exposition of the spiritual life. And as I say, it's been appealing um, to Christians of all stripes uh, down through the ages. And I think one of the great things about the Makarian writings is that they function as a real wake-up call, um, a wake-up call to every Christian. And although he's writing largely for monastics, for monks and nuns, he'll never talk about monks and nuns, just Christians. So everything he says is addressed to Christians. This is a common, a universal Christian calling that he puts before us, a calling to each and every baptized Christian to seek out the direct experience of the life-giving and perfecting action of the triune God. For Macarius, such experience, such direct experience, is the very essence of Christianity. It even defines Christianity like this. The reality of Christianity is this, the taste of truth, the eating and drinking of truth, the taste of truth. So this focus on direct experience, one of the outstanding features of these texts ascribed to Macarius. It's not an individualistic mysticism. As I say, Macarius pays a lot of attention to the sacramental structures of the church, to the communal dimension of the church. But he's quite uncompromising, insisting that all Christians should strive towards perfection. And he makes this call in a very engaging, in a very warm, in a very encouraging way, with all sorts of, as I, as I say, imagery, metaphor, color, Speaking of the progressive sanctification and deification of the Christian with a stunning range of metaphors and images. And indeed, he's one of our primary witnesses from the fourth century of the theme of deification, salvation understood as incorporation into the divine life. When Macarius was first translated into English, and that happened in the early 18th century, the author, who was a priest in the Church of England, neatly but not very concisely summed up their character in the title he gave the translation. Primitive morality, he called it. Primitive morality. It's a time when primitive was a good thing. Of course, we're used these days to talking about primitive in a negative sense, but certainly when people in the 18th century talked about primitive Christianity, this was definitely a good thing. So primitive morality, or the spiritual homilies of Macarius the Egyptian, full of very profitable instructions concerning that perfection which is expected from Christians and which it is their duty to endeavor after. Now, nowadays, that title would never get past to, you know, a self-respecting publisher. But as I say, it does neatly, if not concisely, sum up uh, the Makarian writings, this universal call to perfection, a universal call to perfection. So as I've intimated already in the title, especially 
Um, there's a great focus on the human heart. So when Macarius is talking about experience, he's talking about an experience which we undergo within the heart. And for Macarius, the heart is the center of the human person. It's the center of the physical organism, uh, the body. It's also the seat of the affections, the emotions. But it's also, and this is very important, um, the seat of the intellect. So the intellect, we think with the heart if we're thinking right. We don't just think with our head, we think with our head in the heart. So Macarius unites the human person around the heart. The heart is the center of the human person, the inner man, as it were. It's linked to the, the members, all the members of the body. It's the spiritual center, it's the emotional center, and it's the intellectual center of the human person. So this is where the battleground is. This is where the struggle against sin and the passions takes place. And this is where salvation is affected by Christ in the spirit, in the human heart. And Macarius has a very acute sense of the gravity of the spiritual struggle. All humanity has been affected by the fall. Each and every one of us must recognize that the, the closing of paradise, the placing of the flaming sword outside of paradise, the cherubim at the gates and so forth, these are realities for each and every human soul. We all experience the fall. We all experience the veil of darkness, he calls it, that surrounds the human heart and impedes the intellect from communing with God. Christ came in Macarius's understanding to remove that veil, the veil of the passions, the veil of evil, and enable uh, the human being to um, be restored to the state of Adam. And furthermore, in addition, to receive the heavenly gift of the spirit. So when Macarius is talking about salvation, he isn't just talking about going back to square one with the remission of sins, but the heavenly gift of the spirit, i.e. theosis, i.e. incorporation into the divine life. Um, so huge amount on uh, the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned, um, lots of images for the Holy Spirit. Um, it's quite interesting, he uses mother imagery for the Holy Spirit. This is something he gets from his Syriac background, where it's actually quite common to use feminine maternal imagery of the Holy Spirit. We see a lot of that in Macarius. Um, and the work of the Holy Spirit within each human heart is to, um, is to be received by each of us. Macarius is typical of the Eastern Christian tradition in that he holds there must be some sort of cooperation between divine grace and human freedom. And if we are eventually, God willing, to share in grace, to share in Christ's resurrection, then it's quite clear that we must also participate in the sufferings of Christ. So while there's a great deal on um, sufferings and struggle, um, there's also a great deal of hope and uh, perseverance and faith in the life of the church. I already mentioned briefly what he his, the importance he attaches to the sacraments. And it's worth underlining that for Macarius, the whole Christian life is the gradual revelation or manifestation of the grace laid down in baptism. So baptism lays down all the grace we need, but it's up to us to work with that grace to make it manifest. Macarius is no Pelagian, uh, semi-Pelagian, no sort of Pelagian. Salvation comes by God's grace alone. Um, we can do nothing without God, but 
He does add, God does nothing without us. God expects something of us, some sort of miserable crumb of effort to give God the excuse or pretext, he calls it, uh, to affect our salvation. So this, again, classic Eastern Christian notion of synergia, cooperation between divine grace and human freedom. God does nothing without us. We can do nothing without God. An enormous amount in Macarius on the experience of the Spirit, um, being mingled with the Spirit, assimilated to Christ, presented to the Father. Um, the Trinitarian dynamic of salvation is declaimed with absolute clarity um, by Macarius. And as the human being is incorporated into the divine life, um, we're changed, but yet remain somehow um, the same. As he puts it in deification, in theosis, all the members of the body become translucent, all are plunged into and transformed by light and fire. They're not destroyed, they do not become fire, their nature ceasing to subsist. For Peter remains Peter, Paul remains Paul, and Philip remains Philip. Each retains his own nature and hypostasis, filled by the spirit. So there you have some of the basic building blocks of deification. Incorporation into the divine life um, doesn't mean the eradication of the ontological gap between God and us. Doesn't mean the eradication of our distinct personhood. We remain human, created. We remain the particular persons we are, even as we are taken up into the divine life. So a very careful um, but very compelling understanding of theosis in Macarius. Last point in this whistle-stop survey of his teaching, great emphasis on light. So when Macarius talks about the experience of God, um, light is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, the whole purpose of Christianity for Macarius is that each soul can experience the vision of God as light, the vision of God as light. Not just some sort of revelation of concepts or knowledge, but the eternal illumination of the hypostatic light, the eternal illumination of the hypostatic light. And this was to be of enormous importance for the later Eastern Christian, Eastern Orthodox uh, tradition in particular. So that's just a brief sense of some of the main kind of lineaments, characteristics of Macarius's teaching. And before delving um, too much further into what he has to say about Christology, and salvation. Let me say a word about his legacy. I, I already intimated that he's very popular amongst uh, not only Orthodox, but also Catholics and Protestants. Um, even in the fourth century, people start copying his work. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, the great Cappadocian theologian, copied a work of Macarius and circulated it under his own name. By the fifth century, Macarius is in Constantinople. By the sixth century, he's being translated into Syriac and Latin. Um, in the later Greek patristic tradition, he's all over the place. He gets into Arabic, he gets into Georgian. Um, with the onset of printing, you find Macarius being printed and translated um, with alacrity from the 16th century, especially in Reformation contexts in England and in the Netherlands. Um, within the Orthodox tradition, someone like St. Gregory Palamas in the 14th century um, harks back directly to Macarius in defending the possibility of the vision of God as light. In the Slavic world, when St. Seraphim of Sarov in the early 19th century speaks about the acquisition of the Holy Spirit as the 
summit of the Christian life. He's echoing a call made hundreds of years earlier by Macarius. The Jesuits liked him. So some of the early Jesuit uh, rules lay down Macarius as good reading for novices. Uh, on Mount Athos today, um, Macarius is recommended for novices. I think because although there's a great deal on the severity of the spiritual struggle, there's also an overall message of hope and encouragement um, going through them. The Spanish Inquisition condemned the Macarian writings on four occasions, and I often think that's a bit of a badge of honor. Uh, an unexpected one, perhaps. Um, Dante, uh, in the Paradiso 22, um, seems to show some knowledge of Macarius, it seems to me. Um, he points to St. Romuald and St. Macarius in the highest sphere of contemplation. Here Romualdus see, here Macarius see, and here by brothers who in cloisters pent from every worldly taint kept their hearts free. And I like to think that when Dante points to Macarius with no further designation, this is incorporating at least something of the spiritual teaching of the Macarian writings. John Wesley is another great devotee of Macarius. There's a diary entry in 1736 when he's at sea off of the Carolinas. He says he read Macarius and sang, read Macarius and sang. Now, does, it, does it mean he read Macarius and then just burst out singing because it's so amazing? Or did he read Macarius and then turn to his normal daily devotions, which would involve some singing? We don't quite know, but I've always rather liked that entry. Read Macarius and sang. Um, Wesley published Macarius as volume one of his Christian library. So that in itself is a testament to the value John Wesley placed on the Macarian writings as the extraordinary testimony to the possibility of each and the necessity for every Christian soul to seek out the direct and deifying experience of God. German pietism, also very uh, keen on Macarius, Johann Arndt in particular knew them by heart. So a very ecumenical legacy. Now, let's go deeper into this theme of the heart of salvation, the heart of salvation. As I have indicated, the heart is the, the inner man, the inner self, not so much the subconscious as the superconscious, because the intellect is there. The heart governs and rules, says Macarius, the whole bodily organ, and when grace takes hold of the pastures of the heart, it rules over all the members and the thoughts. For there is the intellect and the thoughts of the soul and its expectation. Thus, through the heart, grace penetrates to all the members of the body. For the heart, as I say, the point at which soul and body meet. It's the deep self, a vast and shifting domain of which we have only a dim apprehension. The heart, he says, has infinite depth. In it are dining rooms and bedchambers, doors and porches, service rooms and passageways. In it is the workshop of righteousness and that of unrighteousness, death and life, good commerce and the contrary. Although the heart is a small vessel, writes Macarius, it contains dragons and lions, venomous beasts and all the stockpiles of evil, rough and uneven paths and chasms. Likewise, God and the angels are there, as our life and the kingdom, light and the apostles, the heavenly cities, and the treasury of grace. All things are there in the human heart. All things are there. That's where the struggle between good and 
evil runs. I mean, you may remember the saying of Alexander Solzhenitsyn that the line between good and evil runs through each and every human heart. Well, I think that's a apprehension that we also find um, in Macarius. Now, by virtue of his understanding of the heart, Macarius is able to affirm in very bold terms the unity of the human person and the participation of the body in the spiritual life. So when he's talking about the experience of light and so forth, this isn't just an intellectual experience, but it's an experience that also passes in some manner to the body. And to illustrate this, he takes the Lord's transfiguration as his paradigm. As the body of the Lord, when he went up onto the mountain, was glorified and transfigured into the divine glory and infinite light, so also are the bodies of the saints glorified and resplendent. For just as the inner glory of Christ covered his body and shone forth, so in the same way on that day in the eschaton, the power of Christ, which the saints now have within, will be poured out upon their bodies. Um, but while there's much on the experience of light in Macarius, there's also a great deal on the more somber aspects of the Christian life. To get to this sort of interior transfiguration takes a good deal of effort and struggle, even a kind of dark night, not unlike that envisaged by St. John of the Cross. Blessed are they, says Macarius, that pass through the fearful places of darkness, the dread night, the dry places, and the pestilential, pestilential airs of sin. Sorry. <clears throat> and who enter into the rest and joy in the gladness of the Spirit. <clears throat> so to share in the glory of the Lord, says Macarius, the soul must also participate in the sufferings of the Lord. No transfiguration, no resurrection without crucifixion. The Lord shows himself to the soul in two aspects, with his wounds and the glory of his light. The soul contemplates the sufferings which he suffered for it, but it also contemplates the dazzling glory of his divine light and is transfigured from glory to glory in the same image, according to the action of the Spirit of the Lord, and grows in both aspects, in that of the sufferings and that of the glorious light. It's an amazing combination of the theme of suffering and transfiguration. Very few people in either East or West have ever managed to unite those themes so potently. There's a lot in Macarius about the mystery of the cross, bearing the cross in the heart and intellect, experiencing the wounds, the stigmata and sufferings of the Lord. The faithful soul, says Macarius, is ever nailed to the cross of Christ. Such a soul truly shares in the crucifixion, imitating Christ's patient acceptance of his torments, and crying loudly to the one who can deliver us from death. The sufferings you see for Macarius, an integral, inescapable part of the Christian life, an essential part of the process whereby the soul is configured to the image of Christ. It's not enough to believe in Christ, says Macarius. One must also suffer with him. And although Macarius is very aware of the severity of the struggles that afflict all Christians, his is essentially a message of hope. We must never despair of our salvation or give up hope. Despair is a ruse of the devil. The experienced soul, says Macarius, when faced with temptations, does not consider it strange, nor does it give up hope, for it knows that it is permitted under sufferance to be tried and educated by evil. Hope founded upon experience pervades the writings. Notwithstanding their very somber estimation of the power of evil, the tone remains positive 
Macarius talks of certain solitaries who go down into the depths of the sea of evil, into the abyss of darkness, and from the depths take hold of and bring up precious stones suitable for the crown of Christ, for the heavenly church, for a new world, a city of light, and an angelic people. In all this, one is reminded of the saying of a contemporary ascetic, St. Siloam the Athenite, keep thy mind in hell and despair not. So in all this, there can be no doubt as to the author's devotion to Christ as the alpha and omega of all human history and of every human story. There's seemingly no end to the number of images that Macarius will use to speak of the salvation wrought by Christ in the heart. Christ becomes everything for us if we let him. He'll speak of Christ, for example, as the heavenly artist, the heavenly artist or iconographer. And if we fix our attention on him, he will recreate us in his own likeness by painting uh, a likeness of himself within the soul. So he talks of the need to rivet our attention on Christ. If Christ is going to be able to um, paint a new creation, a new heavenly likeness within the human soul. Another way he conveys the same point is to talk about a, an infant, a baby, who um, only wants his mother's breast, milk from the breast. Um, you give him gold or dollar bills or, I don't know, video games or whatever, not interested. Just one single interest. We've got to be like that. And he's a monastic, but he must know something about child rearing, I think. Anyway. Far more to be said about his um, vision and description of salvation, but I trust you're getting a bit of a bit of a flavor. Now, moving towards the latter phases of the lecture, I want to talk about his dogmatic foundation. So what he says about Christology, and this will be something we'll be talking about um, over the course of this conference. So although he's, he's a writer whose focus is intensely practical, um, intensely focused on what really matters and how each and every one of us is going to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, he grounds his ascetic teaching, his mystical teaching, his spiritual teaching in a very precise dogmatic framework. <clears throat> Lottie Macarius on Trinitarian theology. Um, but now I want to talk especially about his Christology, what he says about the union of divinity and humanity in Christ. Now, here his starting point, as ever, is his own lived experience of union with Christ. Macarius gives us, interestingly, one of the earliest extant homilies we have on Christmas, on the Feast of the Incarnation. So in this homily, he declares, Today the Lord is born, he who is the salvation of men. Today has effected the reconciliation of divinity and humanity, of humanity and divinity. Today the whole world has leaped. Those on high have been carried towards those below. Those below have been carried towards those on high. Today is accomplished the union, communion and reconciliation of heavenly and earthly beings, of God and man. And we see in Macarius a great emphasis on the reality of the union between divinity and humanity in Christ. He uses an image pioneered by that great theologian of the third century, Origen of Alexandria, and writes, just as the body of the Lord mixed with the divinity is God, so iron in the fire becomes fire. He's in no doubt about the subject of the incarnation, 
when you hear of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you should know God from God, begotten, not made. It is God the Word who has put on human flesh and given up his soul on the cross, dying so that like might be saved by like. So we have in Macarius a use of Theopascite language, God suffered, God died on the cross. We've got an emphasis also on the human soul of Christ, not something which was obvious to everyone in the fourth century. In many ways, his approach is more typical of what is sometimes called the Alexandrine approach to Christology. So a focus on the unity in Christ, a focus on the divine side of the equation, very broadly speaking. Um, but we also see um, elements drawn from what's often called the Antiochian side of Christological thought. So emphasis on humanity, emphasis on the distinction between natures. We find a nice balance in Macarius. Macarius, when he begins to elaborate um, a more positive, cataphatic account of the duality and unity of Christ, writes as follows, the Lord is from heaven and from earth. For God came down from heaven and took the man from the earth and mingled himself with the man. He acted thus so as to make from those on high and those below a single church by mingling the divinity and the humanity. I should say this kind of mixing or mingling language you know, might come over a bit strange to us today, but it was perfectly uh, standard in the fourth century at any rate. You find it in Syriac thinkers like Ephraim and also in Cappadocian fathers like Gregory of Nyssa, for example. Um, speaking of the man or anthropos, it's perhaps more typical of the Antiochian approach to Christology, but it's balanced with a fine, typically Alexandrine, apprehension on the unity of subject in the incarnation. The Lord, says Macarius, produced a new work from Mary and clothed himself in it, but he did not bring his body from heaven. He fashioned the heavenly breath that entered into Adam and mingled it with the divinity. He then put on human flesh, forming it in the maternal womb. So as I hope to have indicated, you see in Macarius an emphasis on unity and duality in Christ, on the divinity and the humanity, on the oneness and the two-ness of Christ. And he goes on to illustrate this fine Christological balance through an image drawn from this world, drawn from the process of dying, of dying cloth. So he begins by drawing an analogy between the, the Lord's flesh and the imperial purple, uh, the purple worn by the empress. For just as the purple is glorified with the emperor, the emperor is not venerated apart from the purple. So the flesh of the Lord is glorified together with the divinity and Christ venerated together with the flesh. So this metaphor of the imperial purple is something you find elsewhere, particularly in the Antiochian uh, school in Diodor, for example, Diodor of Tarsus. But in someone like Diodor, it's used to accentuate the division between divinity and humanity. But Macarius actually goes on to use it to emphasize the unity in a very intriguing way. He goes on to insist that in Christ, the flesh with the soul and the divinity become one thing, one thing, even though they are two. And he goes on to illustrate this by turning from the image of the emperor with his clothing to the clothing itself, to the purple itself. As wool dyed in purple results in one beautiful form, even though it comes from two natures, and to hypostases, it's no longer possible for the wall to be separated 
from the dye, nor the dye from the wool. In this way, the flesh with the soul, united to the divinity, results in one thing, that is to say, one hypostasis, one person, the heavenly God worshipped with the flesh. So in Macarius 370s to 390s, we have two natures, one hypostasis. This is a long time before Cyril's debate with Nestorius, and in some very striking ways, anticipates the conclusions of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And it always amazes me that Macarius is never referred to in dogmatic histories, in histories of Christology. Uh, the standard history of Christology is Gromaya's Christ in Christian tradition. And Macarius is completely absent, despite being absolutely ahead of his time in his very finely balanced and sophisticated Christology. But perhaps we can say some more about that in uh, discussion. As I say, Macarius's ruminations on Christology always conducted within a very practical framework designed to underpin and defend the reality of the salvation wrought in each and every human heart by Christ. So to close this lecture, I think I can do little better than to quote the end of the festal homily to which I've already referred. So the homily on Christmas um, that he gave us, one of the earliest extant homilies on Christmas we have. So here we go to finish off. For he is in heaven, seated at the right hand of majesty, but on earth, united to the saints and living with them. He is on high, but also down below. He is God, but also man. He is the living one, and he is the one who has undergone death. He is the Lord of all things, but also the servant of all. He is the lamb and the sacrifice, the fatted calf and the high priest, the suffering one and the one who cannot suffer, the bridegroom and at the same time the bride, the one who marries and also the bridal chamber, paradise and the tree of life, the city of Jerusalem and also the temple and the holy of holies, the ocean and the universe, the food of souls and the one who assures their salvation, the bread of life and the water of life, the true vine and the wine that gladdens, the pearl and the treasure, military apparel and the fighter, armor and the victorious soldier, circumcision and the Sabbath and the law. He is the head of the church of the saints and the grain of wheat, the vine and the plow, grace and faith, the wedding feast and the wedding garment, the way and the door, the sun of righteousness and the light of souls, life and the kingdom, the beginning and the end. He is beyond all, and he has made himself all in all things. He is the holy and divine babe born this day, the salvation and the life of our souls. Glory to his greatness, glory to his love for man, glory to his extraordinary dispensation. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, we have some time for questions uh, at this point. Uh, uh, so if you raise your hand, uh, uh, I'll you.
Ah, well, I'm, I'm tempted to say my book on Macarius, but uh, <laughs> available, I would like to say available in good, all good bookshops, but uh, anyway. Um, well, probably the, um, so the writings of Macarius fall into four main collections. Um, it's collection two of 50 spiritual homilies, which is the most widely available. And there was a very good translation done in the 1920s by A.J. Mason. And that's actually quite freely available online. There's also a version by the Jesuit uh, priest George Maloney in the Classics of Western Spirituality series. So one of those, either the Mason translation or the uh, Maloney translation, or if you, if you have the Philokalia, the collection of Orthodox uh, spiritual texts from the 5th to the 14th centuries, it's in um, volume two, the Philokalia, um, a selection of extracts from Macarius. So that's a good place to start. And then you can buy my book after that. Oh, sir. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you for the summary, Mark. Um, I, I was just curious. Um, <clears throat> I know it's difficult in like a interview, but is there, you, you mentioned origin, but I was wondering if you could reflect a bit more on possible sources of this, uh, this of these writings, and perhaps possible hypotheses on how he was able to be so pressing about the Thank you. It's a, a great question. And um, yes, when we're looking at these texts, uh, Origen is somebody who is, I think, in the background, as he is in the background of virtually all the theology of the fourth century. Um, there are allusions, I think, to Clement of Alexandria um, as well. Um, also use of some Syriac sources, uh, the famous Hymn of the Pearl, for example. Um, so definitely we can connect him to the Syriac thought world and many parallels with someone like Ephraim, but no direct influence between the two of them. Um, of course, this is a time in the fourth century when it was rather unusual to quote your authorities. Um, quotation of the fathers in order to support particular points is something which perhaps we can see beginning in the fourth century, but it's not a decisive theological criterion. So you, don't, you won't find Macarius quoting anyone, um, nor does he refer to known persons uh, with the exception of Plato and Socrates, who he mentions briefly as great cities of knowledge who are effectively empty because of the absence of the Holy Spirit. But I don't think he mentions any other human names apart from Plato and uh, Socrates. So situating him, um, our, our main um, sort of anchor really is the connection with Gregory of Nyssa. So as I intimated, uh, so Gregory of Nyssa actually um, copied uh, what we might call plagiarized these days. Uh, but there's a different notion of intellectual property uh, in the fourth century, thankfully. Um, but don't try appealing to that if ever you get into trouble for that in any of your essays. <laughs> um, so Gregory of Nyssa certainly knew Macarius and um, circulated some of his work under his own name, I think to give it a, a wider circulation. 
Um, Macarius does refer to something very like the decisions of the Ecumenical Council of Constantinople. Um, not so much the, the, the creed as such as the synodal letters produced by uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381. So that's another um, way we can um, situate them in a broader dogmatic um, patristic uh, context. And then we find them being cited as early as the early 5th century as well in Constantinople. So these are some of the ways uh, we can situate the homilies. Um, they're being ascribed to Macarius of Egypt or Macarius of Alexandria at least as early as the 6th century, um, possibly at the same time to a certain Simeon of Mesopotamia about whom we know um, nothing. So it's tricky to say much about exactly who it was that wrote them. It seems to me quite likely that they were written um, an anonymously, but ascribed literally to a blessed one. And the title, the blessed one, was quite a common um, title within the Syriac tradition to refer to great spiritual teachers. And actually homily one of the collection two, which I just mentioned, um, which is an extraordinary exposition of the vision of Ezekiel in the play, um, begins with um, Omakarios Prophetis, the, the blessed prophet Ezekiel. And I think there's some sort of interesting wordplay going on there. Um, there have been some scholars who really tried to argue very forcibly that this Simeon of Mesopotamia is actually the true name of the author. And that's a kind of complicated question because it brings us into a heresy that was condemned at the time, a heresy of Messalianism. So the Messalians very briefly thought that all you need is prayer, you don't need baptism, you don't need the Eucharist, you just need to pray, and that's enough. And Macarius actually has quite a lot to say about baptism and the Eucharist. So identifying Macarius as Simeon of Mesopotamia, a, a condemned uh, Messalian, is problematic. So I think it's actually rather beautiful that they've ended up being anonymous and uh, ascribed to the Blessed One. But somebody who is certainly uh, rooted in the Greek patristic tradition, to some extent in Greek philosophy, but also the Syriac tradition, and um, concretely united to the work of the Cappadocian Fathers. Um, so that much for his kind of context. I mean, you can say a lot more about the geography. He talks about the Euphrates, which certainly seems to put him in Syria, Mesopotamia, not in Egypt, and the various other allusions which make it, I think, impossible to maintain the traditional ascription to Macarius of Egypt or Macarius of Alexandria. But uh, beyond that, I think that, yeah, there's something quite beautiful about their being simply ascribed to the Blessed One. Thank you.